Well, good morning. Welcome to Big Valley Grace. And for those that are visiting, and as well as on the uh, uh, online and in the venue, we're glad that you're here. And I hope we're all having our Bibles and we're able to read and to study. That today's message is on championing the sovereignty of God. So when we talk about God being sovereign, what is it, what is it that we mean? When we talk about his sovereignty, we mean that God is, uh, he is in charge. He's in charge of everything. In fact, we're going to see here in just a little bit as we read through uh, this book, uh, particularly in chapter 37, that even, even the rain falls at his command. The snow falls at the Lord's command. He's, he's in charge. He's in control. But there's an aspect that Job didn't quite understand and that he cares. And Elihu is going to say, while he is almighty, he's all powerful, he's just and he's righteous in this way, he does not oppress. He's not against you, Job. He's for you. It may not seem like it right now. You may not understand it right now, but I assure you, based upon who he is, that he is for you. So we're in Job chapter 36. We've been on a great journey. This is uh, kind of a unique passage of Scripture. There are six chapters in this discourse to speak. We have been tracking along. We have two more weeks that we're going to go into this book. We're going to go into 38, and uh, Pastor Rick will be closing us off in the book of Job. It's been a great, great, great study. But in this passage, a, a new guy shows up. His name is Elihu. He's not mentioned at all. We have no idea that he was standing around listening. And uh, we're going to get into who he is in just a moment. But he speaks and uh, Job listens. And he preps Job for God to speak in just a little bit. So if you have your Bibles, so we're in chapter 36. I'm going to read verses 32 through the end of chapter 37. This captures the flavor of Elihu's discourse with Job. And then we're going to break it apart and encourage you to follow along. Job 36, starting verse 22. Elihu says, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed his ways for him? Or said to him, referring to God, you have done wrong. Remember, Job, to extol his work, which men have praised in song. All mankind has seen it, Job, God's work. All men have gazed on it from afar. How great is God beyond our understanding. The number of his years is past finding out. He draws up the drops of water, which distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture and abundant showers fall on mankind. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds, how he thunders from his pavilion? How he, see how he scatters his lightning about him, bathing the depths of the sea? This is, what, this is the way that he governs the nations, Job, and provides food in abundance and mercy. He fills his hands with lightning and commands it to strike its mark. And his thunder announces the coming storm. Even the cattle make known its approach. In chapter 37, verse 1. At this my heart pounds and leaps from its place. Listen, listen, Job, to the roar of his voice, to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Uh, we're going to see in chapter 38, verse 1, that the Lord's going to speak out of a storm. So maybe Elihu is seeing this majestic storm beginning to brew, and he knows that this is different than any storm that he has seen. And the Lord is speaking through him, preparing Job to hear the Lord speak out of the storm. In verse 3, God unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the ends of the earth. And after that comes the sound of his roar. He thunders with his majestic voice. And then his voice resounds back and he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. I love this in verse 6. He says to the snow, fall on the earth. You get that? We tend to think that snow just kind of comes all by itself. Rain just comes by itself. 
It doesn't snow. It says, he says, it snows. <laughs> That's something. Every snowflake is by his design. And he says, you can go now. <laughs> you can fall. He says to the snow, fall on the earth. And to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour. You ever been in a real downpour? One of our first year we were back in Pennsylvania, it rained 15 inches in one day. My shower doesn't put out that kind of water, <laughs> thanks to California's energy conservation. <laughs> and I'm glad that he does it as he does it. You calculate how much weight is in the water that falls, even in just an inch of rain. We're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of tons of water that falls upon just a small piece of ground. Imagine where he'd let it loose all at once. Tons of water that he allows to drizzle down so that man is spared. So he says to the snow, fall on the earth, the rain shower be a mighty downpour, verse seven, so that all men he has made, all men, does it make any difference what language they're from, where in the earth that they are, that he has made, may know his mighty work. He stops every man from his labor. The animals take cover. They remain in their dens. The tempest comes out from its chamber. The cold from the driving winds. The breath of God produces ice and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. And at his direction, they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish men or to water his earth and show his love and grace and mercy. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Job, do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Job, do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who is perfect in knowledge? That'd be a great question to ask your children. The next storm comes, you take them out there and you say, hey kids, you know how the clouds hang up there? You know, you, under, you know what God's about ready to do here? Look at verse 17. You who swelter in your clothes, definitely talking about a humid climate, right? <laughs> you who swelter in your clothes when the land is lies hush under the south wind, can you join him in spreading out the skies hard as a mirror of cast bronze? So tell us, Job, what we should say to God. We cannot drop our case because of our darkness. Should he be told, Job, that I want to speak? Would any man ask to be swallowed up? Now to no one, now no one can look at the sun, bright as it is in the skies. After the wind has swept them clean out of the north, he comes in golden splendor. God comes in awesome majesty. Verse 23, the Almighty, he is beyond our reach, Job. He is exalted in power and in his justice and great righteousness, God does not oppress. And since this is true, it's the word therefore means, men revere him. For does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? And then the Lord answers Job out of a storm and he speaks. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for just the, the privilege of reading your word and just being reminded of your awesomeness. That there's no teacher like you that no one taught you, that you're above all teachers, and in all of your works you have done no wrong. You are the one, Lord, who says to the rain, gather together and rain, and create a downpour or a sprinkle, a little bit of snow, a lot of snow. You're the one who controls all of those things. You're almighty, you're awesome. I'm so grateful, Lord, that you do not oppress. 
that you care. You're not willing that any should perish, but all to come to know you. And so, Lord, teach us here today. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Give us a heart to receive your word today. And to those whom you're speaking to, draw them to yourself. And we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In studying this uh, passage, this is, it's hard just to park on just even this, what I just read. So we're going to walk through uh, uh, Elihu's or Elihu's uh, speech here. This is his little discourse here with Job. And I want us to see some different things in it. So look at, uh, go back and turn to chapter 32. And let's just begin. Who in the world is uh, Elihu? And there's two ways to pronounce this name, Elihu or Elihu. And I keep, I can't figure out which one I should use. <laughs> so I'm going to speak back and forth. But both means the same thing. Well, well, the first thing we find out is that he's the youngest guy. He has been sitting in the background. He's been listening to three older men and he's been silent up until this point. Look at chapter three, uh, chapter 32, verse three. Uh, he was also angry with his three friends because they had found no way to refute him and yet had condemned him. Now, Elihu had waited before speaking to Joe because they were older than he. In our earlier studies, Eliphaz was potentially as old as Job's father which would have put him quite likely over 100 years old. Job probably was close to 70 years old when this was taking place. He lives 140 more years after this, which puts him over 200 years old when he finally passes away. Uh, but Eliphaz is maybe as old as his dad, and quite possibly Zophar and Bildad were the same age, which means that if he's younger, what's younger than 70? 40, 50, 30, 20? We don't know. Uh, and so we were studying this. I had a group of men. We had a little study team. It was kind of fun. The idea occurred to us, this is, this is the gardener. <laughs> he's in the background. Nobody paid any attention to him. And he's out there. He's out there pruning the hedges and raking the leaves, listening to this conversation. And finally, after everyone's done, he can't believe that they've stopped. He puts his rake down or his blower or whatever it is and says, I can't stand it anymore. I got to say something. That's a, that's a lie who. And that's, that has, it has a clear picture to me. So he's a surprise. Uh, we didn't expect him. He's not mentioned at all in the very beginning of the book, and he's not mentioned in the end of the book. It's just here in, these, in this chapter. He's the youngest, and he's exempt from God's rebuttal. In chapter 42, four, verse 7, God rebuts Eliphaz, uh, Bildad, and Zophar because they have not spoken of him rightly. He corrects them. In fact, he says, if you guys don't sacrifice, I'm about ready to put my thumb down on you guys. You need to go to Job, take some lambs and rams with him, and he'll pray for you, and I'll listen to his prayer, and I'll Answer, to his, answer his prayer because you have spoken of me wrongly. Elihu is not in that rebuke. So I think that's significant. Not only is he the youngest, but as he speaks here, we ought to pay attention to what it is that he's saying. There's a reason why this is included here and a reason why God has not rebuked uh, Elihu or Elihu in the same way that he has with Eliphaz and the other two men. So he's exempt from God's rebuttal. And this is the longest discourse. If we were to add all the verses that uh, Eliphaz and all the, and he had, there's three rounds of conversations. Bildad, three rounds of his conversation. Zophar, he bails out off the second one. If we add all those verses, it would not equal what we're reading here. This is the number one. Only Job speaks more than um, Elihu by one verse. <laughs> so this is significant. That means that we ought to be paying attention to it. Now, his motivation and why he can't stand to be cited anymore. In fact, if you look down at verse 16, uh, 32, 16, 
He says, must I wait now that they are silent, now that they can, now that they stand with no reply? I too will have my say. I too will tell what I know, for I am full of words and the spirit within me compels me. And Simon, I'm like a bottled up wine, like new wineskins ready to burst. And so he just has to say something. And the reason he has to say something is because as he's been listening, Job has spoken more about himself than of God. Job has justified himself and his behavior more than God. Uh, if you look at uh, chapter 32, you'll see this in chapter 32, verse 1. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And the Septuagint, it even says that, it gives the implication in an older version of the Old Testament is that the men had become convinced that Job was righteous. So there's two ways to look at it. That Job's remarks were so persuasive that he had persuaded these men that, he, yeah, I guess he really is righteous and they've stopped talking. Or Job is so full of himself, the guys throw up their hands and say, there's just no use talking to Job. It's just like talking to a wall. Look at verse three. He was also angry with his three friends because they found no way to refute Job and yet they had condemned him. And so his motivation was that Job had justified himself rather than God and his friends were unable to refute yet they had condemned Job. And where this is significant, because they were unable to refute, they were essentially agreeing with him and Job was just saying, I've been doing everything right. God is not just. He does not care. While he is almighty, he, uh, this doesn't make any sense what's happening to me. And by not able to refute him, Elihu was thinking, therefore they must agree with him that those things are true. Job's friends believed that Job was a hopeless hypocrite. As we studied from last week and before, over and over these men were absolutely convinced that trouble only comes as a result of sin. Therefore, Job must have some hidden sin. Eliphaz uh, speaks of that. Uh, and, and Job says, I didn't do any of those things. But surely, why else would you be suffering, Job? Why else would God put this upon you if it wasn't for some kind of hidden sin? So not enough had been said on God's behalf. Look at chapter 36, verse 1. Elihaz, Elihu continues, and he says, bear with me a little longer, and I will show you that there is more to be said in God's behalf. That is what's driving Elihu. He has been listening to these men. He's been listening to Job, and God has not been spoken of rightly. Somebody needs to speak in God's behalf. Somebody needs to set the record straight, and Elihu, who, who's been listening, is about ready to burst, and there he has to, and so he speaks, and we get... Um, and we have these six chapters. During this course of this time, while Job was blameless, which is what we pick up in Job chapter one and chapter two, as he defends himself, Job is becoming more and more convinced how righteous he is. That shows up in his last conversation. If you look at chapter 31, look at Job's words starting in verse 35. And this is really the straw that broke the camel's back for Elihu. Job says, oh, that I had someone to hear me because God's not hearing me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. It's like a double dare. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. And what is he going to do with it? Look what he says in 36. Surely I would wear God's indictment on my shoulder. I would put God's indictment on, I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account. It means I'm going to tell God a thing or two of my every step, and like a prince, I would pridefully approach him. Job is at the epitome of his confidence, 
of his self-righteousness. And Job, uh, Elihu, who's heard all this, cannot stand it any longer and must speak. Job's complaint falls into three categories. And Elihu's speech fits into these three categories. He has multiple speeches here, and they address these three things. The first thing that Job was complaining is that, God, where are you? I've been praying, 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 and you have been silent. God has been silent. Look at chapter 30, verse 20. Chapter 30, verse 20 says, I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. Over and over again, throughout Job's responses, we were, he was wishing that God would speak. He would love to have had an audience with God. He would love to have an advocate stand with him because what he was experiencing did not make any sense to him. He also felt that God was unjust. How in the world could this happen to me? God is not just. Look at verse in chapter 30, look at 25 and 26. He says, have I not wept for those in trouble? Has not my poor soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I had hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, when then came darkness. Job is saying, this isn't fair, Lord. I, I was a good man. All my life, I have sought to follow you. I have obeyed you. I have cherished your commands. I have attempted to do everything right. I've tried to apply it in my life. I was kind to the poor, uh, to those that were weak. I, I was there to be their strength and their help. And this is what I get? That's not right. God, how, God, if you're just, how can this even be? And so he was very critical and believing in many instances and encourage you to look up those passages where he felt that God was just. And lastly, the third thing, which was the kicker, is that God does not reward me. I have done everything right, and this is what I get. Go back to chapter 30. Look what he says. I've not, have I not wept for those in the trouble? Has not my poor soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I had hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. If you flip over to uh, chapter 35, verse three. Elihu responds with something he remembers Job saying. He says, yet you ask him, what profit is it to me? What do I gain by not sinning? And so he's saying, this isn't right. Not only is it not right, but God is not rewarding me. It's like, what, what was the advantage of me to being so good? And maybe you, maybe there's someone here today like that where you have attempted to, oh, to do everything right. You've been faithful in church attendance. You've been teaching the cynical class. You've been an usher, served on the medical team. <laughs> uh, you, you've tithed. You sent your kids to a Christian school. And this is what I get, Lord. This is what happens. Marriage falls apart. My business has failed. I got this disease. <laughs> and Lord, I used to be a great servant of yours. And, and now this I don't get it, Lord, because I look at my neighbor over here who hasn't paid any attention to you, and man, they're prosperous. Kids are successful. They've never been to a hospital a day in their life. Everything they touch seems to turn to gold. Read Psalm 73, write that down. Asaph had that complaint. He was asking the same question that Job was asking. Lord, I don't get it. So Elihu speaks, and he's going to address all three of these things. So look at uh, chapter 33. We're in verse 33 now. Look at 12 and 13. He's going to address this that God is silent. How come God doesn't answer me? 
So look at chapter 33 and starting in verse 8. And in these next few verses from 8 to 11, he's going to restate what he has heard Job say. And we could go back and look at those passages. It's there in your notes for you. But here's what Job said. But Job, you have said in my hearing, I heard these very words. Job, you said I am pure and without sin. Job, you said, you said I am clean and free from sin. Yet God has found fault with me, Job. That's what you've said. He, Job, you said he considers you to be his enemy. You said that he fastens your feet in shackles and you keep close watch on all my paths. Job, you, that's what you have said. Verse 12, but I tell you, Job, in this you are not right. For God is greater than man. Why do you complain to him that he answers none of man's words? Why do you complain to him that he's not answering your prayer? For God does speak one way, now another, though man may not perceive it. And now he's going to list several ways in which God regularly speaks to try to get our attention. Three ways. Look at number one. He speaks to us in a dream. Verse 15. In a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on them as they slumber in their bed, God will speak and approach man. He also will speak in their ears. He'll whisper in their ears and terrify them with warnings. His intent is in verse 17 and 18, which we'll get to, but he speaks in dreams. He speaks through their ears and their conscience. And verse 19, he'll also use pain. He'll use difficult circumstances. Verse 19 says, or a man may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in his bones. In fact, as you read through this, it sounds like he's talking about Job. So that his very being finds food repulsive and his soul loathes the closest, uh, closest meal. His flesh wastes away to nothing and his bones one hit, once hid now stick out. His soul draws near to the pit, his life to the messengers of death. And so the Lord speaks. He speaks in dreams. He speaks in whispers. He speaks in pain. And the question is, why does God speak like this? Why does he come approach us maybe with certain dreams that we might have? Nightmares that we might have? The quiet moments in your mind when you're thinking back on the course of your life and the decision you're making. This is this sense that something's not right. Why does he whisper in your ear through your conscience that something's not right? What is he trying to do through the circumstances of life to get our attention? And some of you are here today, if we were to hear your testimony. I know many of your stories. You would tell us a story of how you found the Lord through great brokenness, through great disappointment. He got your attention. In answer to somebody's prayer, I have prayed much for family members, that God would take them all the way down that they would find him. I would rather my kids be poor and walk with Jesus than to have all the success this world has to offer and be far away from him and lose their soul, wouldn't you? And I pray that God would get their attention. I pray that God would open their ears, that he'd speak to them in the night. He'd whisper to them. Whatever it would take, he would get their attention. Here's why, and look at this. He is not willing that any should perish. Look at verse 17 and 18. He says he does this in verse 17, chapter 33, to turn man from wrongdoing, to keep him from pride, to preserve his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Lord is not willing that any should perish. He sees the roads that we're walking down. He knows where it's going to lead. He's doing everything he can to get your attention, that you turn from where you're going and you'd walk towards him. He takes no delight in punishing the wicked. The death of an unrighteous man does not bring him joy and delight. It's important to know that God is not willing that any should perish, but all would come to know him. 
He also speaks to turn him back from the pit. Look at verse 18. It says to preserve his soul from the pit. Look at verse 30. To turn back his soul from the pit. What's he talking about? There's a road that leads to destruction. It leads to hell. And there's only two roads, Jesus said to his disciple. One road is very wide. Lots of people are walking down it. They're like swimming in the Merced River upstream from the Yosemite Falls. And people on the shore are screaming at him, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out, before it's too late. And there's a road that people walk down that leads to destruction, and many walk down it. A lot of things down that road. There's a lot of brokenness down that road. There's a lot of pleasure down that road. There's a lot of success down that road. But it all leads to the same place. The rich will go right over Yosemite Falls. The poor will go right over Yosemite Falls. The self-religious will go right over Yosemite Falls. doesn't make any difference. If you're in that river just above Yosemite Falls, if you don't get out, it's only one place you're going to go. And the Lord doesn't want anyone to go into the pit. He doesn't want to send anyone there. Thirdly, it says he, 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 his desire is that they would come out of darkness into light. Look at verse 30. Uh, I'll start in 29. God does all of these things to a man two, three, even three times to turn back his soul from the pit that the light of life may shine on him. The Lord does not want anyone to walk in darkness. He wants him to come into the light. I had a young man pray to receive Christ. It was so incredible to watch him. He had been a three-time um, Iraqi war veteran, three, three tours of duty, and PTSD was really big in him. And there, there, really, there was a darkness over him as he walked. And man, when, he, when the Lord got a hold of his heart, man, you ought to see Dan today. Tattoos are still there. Stories are still there. But there is a joy and a light in his life. Unlike, it's just amazing. It was like somebody turned the light bulbs in him. And that's what the Lord wants to do in each of us. He wants to pull us out of darkness into light. But you know, here's what I, here's what I love as you look at these things. These are true. He's doing these things. And maybe there's some here today that you know God's been trying to get your attention. He's been whispering. He's been knocking. He's been bringing things into your life. But here's, here is, look at 29. How often does God do this? Does it come to you once? Ah, it's not listing. I think I'll just move on. Look what it says. God does all of these things to a man, which is referring to how he speaks, twice, even three times. And the implication is four, five, six, seven. He keeps coming back. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Folks, don't harden your heart. You respond the first time, but he's going to keep coming after you. He's going to keep knocking on the door. He's going to keep whispering. He's going to keep whispering and yelling from the sidelines, get out, get out before it's too late. Those who go into the pit do so because they have refused to listen to the voice of God. This word says that the eyes of the Lord move throughout the whole earth looking for someone whose heart's completely his. There, is, there will not be a single man or woman that will be without excuse on the day they stand before the Lord and everything will be exposed and the Lord gives them what they have wanted all of their life, a life apart from him. The Lord doesn't want that. He wants us all to avoid that. So, so God speaks and Elihu continues. Not only does he speak, Job, but God is just. Look at chapter 34, starting in verse 10. Chapter 34, actually go to verse 9. For Job says, Elihu is responding again to what Job has said, recalling back what, he's, what he said in an early passage, and you can look it up, it's there. 
Job says, it profits a man nothing when he tries to please God. So Job, listen to me. And listen to me, you men of understanding. So the other men are there. Far be it from God. And folks, this is important to know. Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. God repays a man for what he has done. He brings about him what his conduct deserves. But it is unthinkable that God would do wrong. It is unthinkable that the Almighty would pervert justice. Who appointed God over the earth? Who put him in charge of the whole world? Nobody. <laughs> if it were his intention, look at this. If it were his intention, I'm reading in, in 34, 14. If it were God's intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, what would happen? Luke 15. All mankind would perish together and man would return to the dust. If it were his intention to withdraw his spirit. Take a deep breath. Let it out. Take another one. You thought you did that. You thought you did that. Lord gave that to you. And he gave you the one just now. And he probably has a few more the rest of this day that he's gonna give you. But one of these days he's gonna say, Olaf, that's the last one. Take one big one. Great, welcome into my heaven. And he's gonna say that to every one of us. He's gonna give us only so many. And for many of us, we have a whole bunch more left, but every single one he gives to us. And when he withdraws, you can't, ch you can't change that. You can't change it. It's entirely in his hands. You and I are entirely in his hands. God is absolutely just. I like verse 10. Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. Job, God can do no evil. This isn't a slip, Job. This isn't a glitch in his sovereignty. He didn't lose control. And he's not being mean-spirited here. He is not wicked. He is not evil. God cannot violate his character. In fact, that's the second point. It is unthinkable that God would operate outside of his character. Look at verse 12. It is unthinkable that God could ever do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Our God is eternal. He is always, forever, has been yesterday, today, and will be tomorrow just. He has always been and will be righteous. He has always been perfect and good. As he was yesterday, so he is today and will be tomorrow. James says that all things... Um, <coughs> that all the good flows down from the Father and there's no variation of shadow before him. Aren't you glad that God doesn't change? That you can count on him? That as he has been, so as he is today and you can promise to your children and your grandchildren and great children that that is what he will be too. The promises are old as though they were written today and are just as fresh and meaningful in our lives today as when they were first spoken because we have an eternal just, omnipotent, all-powerful, unchanging God who can do no wrong, who can do no evil and cannot operate outside of his character. All of his ways are perfect. All of his ways are good, even when it doesn't make any sense. And Job's gonna learn that lesson when we get to chapter 42. Job continues. So not only is he just, Job, not only does he speak two, three, four, five times, Job, but he also is above all, Job. He owes you nothing. Look at chapter 35. Look at starting in verse one. Elihu says to Job, Job, do you think this is just? You say, 
I will be cleared by God. Yet you ask him, what profit is it to me? And what do I gain by not sinning? Job, I would like to reply to you in verse four and to your friends with you. Look up to the heavens and see. Gaze at the clouds so high above you. If you sin, how does that affect God? If your sins are many, what does that do to him? You think that messes him up? If you are righteous, verse seven, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand as though now he's indebted to you? Your wickedness affects only a man like yourself and your righteousness only the son of God. Job, God's not a debtor to you. He doesn't owe you anything. You think by doing all of these things that you've been chalking up points that get to be redeemed with green chip stamps or some kind of thing, prize at the end of it, that God owes you something? You think he's indebted to you? Not at all. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 11, 34 and 35, it says, who has paid God anything that he should have to pay him back? He's not indebted to us. Thirdly, uh, secondly, in verse 12 and 13, Job, God doesn't respond to the arrogant. Look at verses 12, chapter 35. He does not answer Job when men cry out because of the arrogance of the wicked. Indeed, God does does not listen to their empty plea. The Almighty pays no attention to it. That's words right out of Proverbs chapter one, though this was written long before Proverbs. Proverbs chapter one says, wisdom's crying aloud in the streets. God is speaking, he's trying to get their attention. People refuse to listen. You think when they finally cry out, God's gonna hear, you think God's gonna respond? The time to respond is now. The time to respond is today. And he's saying, Job, he's not going to answer the arrogant. He's not going to answer the prideful. Those people who are arrogant and prideful, they're just, they're just wanting to use God. They just want him to be their fix. They don't really want him. They just want their problem solved. You think he's going to respond to that if that's your motivation? In fact, James says, the reason that you haven't been getting prayers answered is because you're asking with wrong motives. You think God's going to respond to a prayer that says, Lord, can you get me a Mercedes Benz this week? I know you can do all things. How about me getting one of those? He's going to respond to that? No, not at all. The nature of our God, Elihu says in chapter 37, the nature of our God, look at verse 23. The nature of our God is that he's almighty. He's beyond our reach. He's exalted in power in his justice and great righteousness and he does not oppress. The nature of God is that he's beyond our reach. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. In fact, Isaiah says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways above our own. Our God is so far beyond us. His understanding is so much greater than ours can. I get... I, I listen to YouTube debates on um, apologetics and Richard Dawkins and some of those other guys, Christopher Hitchens, and I listen to them. You know how foolish those men are and were? Christopher Hitchens just passed away uh, about a year ago or so, and, and he's finding out the truth of all of this thing. And he would dare to face an almighty God. And you think, in fact, it would be... Kind of interesting if God would speak and just say, okay, well, Christopher and Richard, let me ask you some questions before I take yours. And they would say, just as Job would say, oh, Lord, I had, I had no idea. He is beyond our reach, but he's also exalted in power. I love Jeremiah 32, 17. Write that down next to your notes. 
Here's what Jeremiah 32, 17 says. Jeremiah says, oh Lord, behold, uh, oh Lord God, with your outstretched arms and your spoken words, you made the heavens and the earth. Is anything too difficult for you? Just imagine that. The God who stretched out his arms, who spoke the worlds into existence. You think there's a problem in here that's too big for him? You think the things that you and I are facing are too big for him? You think the stuff that we're wrestling with is out of his control? You think he doesn't know what he's doing? Our God is almighty. He is all powerful. And he is absolutely just. That means that all of his ways are perfect. That, that he can cut through the chatter. He's not fooled by anything. He knows, he knows everything. And he's going to deal with things exactly as they need to be dealt with. And he's not going to be a discriminator of persons and power and positions. It means nothing to him. That's what the word just means. Also, Elihu says that he is righteous. His righteousness is great. We can't begin to imagine what that's like. That all of his ways are absolutely perfectly good and he loves that which is good and hates that which is wrong. He is absolutely good and perfect and righteous. But here's the best part. And I love what Elihu says. And this is what Job wasn't getting. As Job would recognize, yeah, I believe that God is almighty. He's exalted in power. He's not sure about the justice part. Not sure about the righteousness part. But Job, I want you to know that God does not oppress. This is this is not, God is not against you, Job. In all of his ways, he's not against you. There's something else that's going on, Job. This is not about you, Job. He is not putting his thumb down on you because he hates you, Job. In all of his power and all of his righteousness, Job, God doesn't oppressing you. He cares about you. The nature of our God is that he's not against us. He's for us. Romans 5 says, but God demonstrated his great love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He's not against us, he's for us. In 1 Peter, it says that, that, that he bore all of our sin on the cross in his body. He took all of our punishment because he cares deeply for us so that you and I might experience his righteousness, so that you and I might be able to be welcomed by him. He's not against us, he's for us. He told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I want you to be with me and I want to be with you. That where I am, that's where you'll be also. In fact, in my father's house, there's a whole lot of places or mansions. And if we're not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare one of those places for you. And when I come back, and I will, we're going to be together. He's not against us. He's for us. He's making a way by which we can have a relationship with him. And here's the so what. Are we listening? He's knocking on the door of all of our hearts. He's trying to get all of our attentions. He wants us to choose him. He wants us to chase after him. He wants us to find our greatest delight in him. In fact, Jesus says that he's like the treasure in the field that's worth giving it all up just to have him. And sometimes we settle, Lord, if you can just get this problem fixed, that's all I really want. No. But we miss him. He wants us to give us him. He wants us to love him. So are we listening? 
And I think it's a wonderful thing to know that the Almighty, while he is beyond our reach, while his understanding is greater than we might ever know, and that his, 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 his scope is unlimited, there's nothing that encapsulates him. He encapsulates everything. But while he's beyond our reach, he's near, folks. He's not far away. He's right here. In fact, it's amazing when we get together, where two or three are gathered together, my name, there I am. I'm going to show up there. He's not far away. He's near. There, there were a lot of folks, some of our founding fathers thought that he was far away when not near. He just wound it up and walked away. That's not true. That's not what the word says. He's near. And lastly, this is what I love. There's a lot of things that go on in our life that we don't understand, right? There's probably tons of stories here that we would listen to. We would say here, I, I, I don't know why you're having to go through that. Prayed with a young couple. It's just their, their lives are in a real mess right now. I don't know why the Lord's taking you through these deep waters. I don't know. I don't know why you have cancer. I don't know a lot of things. But here's what I do know is that he wants us to put our, for us to put our trust confidently in him. He wants us to have a confident trust in him, a confidence that's based upon who he is. He's almighty. He's all powerful. His righteousness is great. He's absolutely just. And he's not oppressing. He has a plan. He's going to fulfill this. Now I'm going to spoil Rick's, one of Rick's messages. Look at 42. Look at 42. Job hears God speak. And look at 42.3. And Job says, you asked who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? He says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And you and I are going to say the same thing. We're going to stand before him. We're going to see... And he's going to welcome us into our heaven because he's for us, not against us. He's preparing a place for us. And then he's going to show us. And we're going to say, when we look at our stuff, we're going to say, like Joe, I had no clue. I had no clue that's what it was about. I had no clue that this thing that I was going through had such incredible ramifications. You knew. Job says, I didn't know. But you knew. There's a song that we sung, introduced to you a few weeks ago that just, boy, just hit the mark. A song that's meant a lot to me. And if you missed it, I want to share it with you for the first time. Those of you who are here, you're going to enjoy it again. But it just speaks of everything that we just talked about. Isn't that good to know the Lord? Is it good to know that we're in his hands? I know many of you, as you've gone through affliction, you've looked at each other and you said, I don't know how anyone gets through this without the Lord. Have you, anyone experienced that? I have many times. That's all right. God's good, isn't it? It's good to know. And I've, this, I love this message just for the reassurance that God is for me, not against me. I love the assurance that he's preparing a place for me. I love the anticipation of him welcoming me into heaven and embracing me and hearing him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I got something I want to show you. That's the part I'm really looking for. I got something I want to show you. (laughs) And we're going to say, as Job said, I had no clue. Because we tend to think it's all about us. 
we're just a little rock that went into the pond and the ripples are just going in from one generation to another generation, another generation. And we're going to look and say, man, Lord, that was what that was about. That's what my kids needed to see. That's what my friend at work needed to hear. That's what my brother who's far away from the Lord needed to see. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, you had to go through it. <laughs> I was really concerned for them. And I knew as you would go through it, that they would be able to hear my voice calling their name. Isn't that amazing what God can do? It's because he's sovereign. He's in control. He's in charge. And he cares. Prayer room's going to be open for anyone that would wish to pray. Nancy and I are going to be right here. I'd love to meet any of you. And particularly if you're brand new here to Big Valley, we'd love to welcome you. If you're, in the, if you're over in the venue, I'd love to meet with you. Feel free to come right up here. But it's a good day to be in the Lord, isn't it? It's a good day to be reaffirmed, affirmed in him, to know that he's waiting for us and he's working through us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You're good. I love for your increase. It's just thinking that you're the almighty one who's beyond my reach and my understanding, yet who is near, who's just and righteous in all those ways, who is for me and not against me. You took it upon yourself, all my sin, so that I could say that you're my friend and I belong to you. Thank you, Lord, for what you did. I I know I, I don't begin to fathom it at all. I know enough to know that it's from you. It wasn't me, it was you. And we give you the praise. And Lord, if there's any here today that you have really been knocking on the door of the heart, today would be that that day where they just are in total surrender. And they find you not only to be their savior, but their wonderful Lord, the captain of their ship. For those who are broken, that they would be mended today. That those who are lost would be found. That those, Lord, who, who are afflicted would find grace today. So Lord, be glorified through it all. And in us through this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord bless you.